Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have a special guest, Arlen Schumer. Welcome to the show. Hi, Gary. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, so you are like a pop culture expert. Is that a correct? Well, you know, they always say self-styled expert. I mean, I don't, you know, it's weird to call yourself an expert. I, you know, it's funny. I like to call myself, I'm a, I was a fan first and foremost, I guess a fan who became a published author and scholar and expert, and I'm using all those words in quotes, about all the things that I loved as a kid. I mean, um, I've been basically taking everything I loved as a kid, that, that booyah base of American pop culture that was the 1960s, and I've been feeding it back as an adult and as a graphic designer and as an artist and a lecturer and a teacher, I've been feeding it all back in the form of coffee table art books or illustrations or lectures, or now I'm doing webinars. So, um, and you know, I've, I got my master's of fine arts degree late in life just last year. So I could hopefully one day teach all this stuff at a college level. But my lectures that I've been doing for three decades now and the webinars are a form of teaching. Um, So I'm a natural teacher. But um, it's funny, uh, about 15 years ago, Gary, a friend of mine gave me a quote from a famous writer and said, Arlen, this quote is you. And I read it and it was from Albert Camus, the famous existentialist writer. And it went like this. A man's work is nothing but the slow trek to rediscover through the detours of art those two or three great and simple images in whose presence his heart first opened. And I mean, as soon as I read that, I'm like, of course this is me. And based on what I just told you before, Gary, that's what I've been doing. I've been taking the, the images. Mm-hmm. I mean, the very first television image I can recall is the black and white Twilight Zone eyeball hanging in <laughs> outer space, which ended up being the embossed image on the cloth hardcover of my first book, Visions from the Twilight Zone. Um, so I, again, I, I put that back out there as a piece of art. The very first cinematic image I can recall, my mother, may she rest in peace, took my brother and I to the drive-in in 1963 to see the first Connery Bond movie, Dr. No. And I didn't have a father. My mother was a widow. My father died when I was four months old. So imagine I'm five and a half years old and I see up on screen, Sean Connery, the ultimate, I mean, talk about a a surrogate father figure. And now I'm doing a James Bond webinar on the first four Bond films. So you see how, it's all come full circle. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what are the webinars? Okay, so I've been doing webinars with this company out of New York City called New York Adventure Club ever since the pandemic shutdown. Because pre-pandemic, 
they were a live in-person meetup organization that did like walking tours of historical sites in New York City and things like that. Well, the pandemic shut that down overnight. So he had to find people who were experts, as you say, in their field, but who were also visual. Because when you do a webinar, you can't just talk. You have to show pictures. So he was talking to a friend of mine that I met a few years ago in New York City named Will Friedwald, who's one of the greatest experts on Frank Sinatra. I mean, he's written like 10 books on Sinatra. And um, I had met him a few years ago, and he had seen my live lectures that I used to do pre-pandemic. And I think the New York Adventure Club guy wanted Will to do a webinar on Sinatra. And after they were done talking about that, he asked Will, who else do you know that you can recommend who's kind of an expert in their field, but's also visual? Well, as soon as he heard that, he goes, you should give this guy Arlen Schumer a call because Will had seen my stuff. Uh-huh. And he knew how visual I was and how into pop culture, the things, you know, Twilight Zone, comic book history, you know, American pop culture, post-World War II, television, movies, things like that. And Corey um, Schneider of New York Adventure Club reached out to me uh, mid-March, and I've been doing webinars for him since April 1st. And it's been great for me because as a freelance artist working out of his apartment, you know, most of the freelance artists I know, we were living a pandemic lifestyle for uh, years, if not decades. (laughs) I mean, what's funny about this pandemic, Gary, is the rest of the world is discovering what it's like to be an independent freelance artist where you wake up every day, you got to figure out how to make money, hopefully, how to get work, how to do work. You got to be self-disciplined. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, uh, and if you're a people person like I am, it kind of sucks when you're isolated. Thank God for the internet. It's a virtual um, meeting place. So I feel like I'm connected, even though I feel disconnected. So, um, yeah. So for me, switching over to doing webinars was perfect because I used to do live lectures Um, but now all I got to do is convert my lecture to a PDF and I show the PDF while I'm talking. And, um, it's, it's like doing a live lecture, except obviously it's virtual, but it's been great for me because I've been able to translate all of my material, um, on pop culture very easily to the webinar format. So it's really been great for me. Um, you know, to maybe hopefully reach a new audience and just get into things. And, you know, it's funny. It led to me having my own radio show uh, on the internet. It led to me having an agent booking appearances like the one with you. I mean, I never would have known about you or, <laughs> or met you if it wasn't for um, shout out to Michelle yeah. Freed, my hardworking agent in Chicago. But you know what I mean? It's like, um, yeah, for years, people would say to me, Arlen, why don't you have your own podcast? Why don't you have your own radio show? You know, you've got the gift of gab, as my sixth grade teacher once told me when I bullshitted my way. Can I say that four-letter yes, word? absolutely. When I bullshitted <laughs> my way through an oral report because I forgot to do the homework, and I was a straight-A student, so I'll never forget, it was the day to deliver an oral report in front of the class, and she called on me, and I 
dawned on me, oh my God, Arlen, you forgot to do your oral report. What are you going to do? So there I was with Mrs. Shern, the teacher. She sat right in front of the class so that when you stood in front of the class, she was sitting in a chair six feet away from you, staring at you. And then the class was behind her. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when I'm looking out over the class, talking to them, she's right in front of me. You know what I mean? Because she's the teacher grading the person giving the report. And I never forget, it was an information report, which means as long as you give information about something, it doesn't matter what the subject was. So imagine, Gary, I had to literally make up something on the spot and act as if it was a prepared oral report. So I remember I had just started playing basketball with my friends. We used to play football all the time, but at that point in my life, sixth grade, we switched to playing basketball. And it just flashed on me. I'll just talk about basketball, like as if I know what I'm talking about. And sure enough, I bullshitted my way. You know, it was about a five-minute oral report. Uh-huh. And I'll never forget, I was talking about, oh, and then, you know, you're six feet from the rim and da-da-da and foul shots. And I'm just making this shit up like a stand-up comedian with no material. I'm just riffing. And the kids are buying it. They're my fellow sixth graders. What do they know? But as I look down every once in a while at Mrs. Shern staring at me, she was looking at me with a look like she knew I was making it up. You know what I mean? I hope she and, well, I hope was just imagining it. No. So at the end of the Aurora report, like I said, uh-huh. I, I fooled the kids. They were an easy mark, but I didn't fool the teacher. Oh. So I'll never forget when she handed out the grades and she got to me, she gave me a B. Now, remember I said I was a straight-A student? Right. So, like, you know, if you've seen The Simpsons, you know, when Lisa Simpson got a B, she practically has a nervous breakdown. So I'll never forget when she gave me a B and she said, Arlen, I know you weren't prepared. I know you were making that up on the spot. And if it wasn't for the fact that you are possessed with the gift of gab, and I'll never forget, she said that to me, the gift of gab, I'm only giving you a B instead of an A. (laughs) But ever since then, yeah, I got the gift of gab. I hope you can tell already, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, so like I said, so, so the webinars led to, um, I got my own like internet radio show that I'm scheduling right before each webinar to kind of just do an audio only um, discussion about whatever I'm going to do on the webinar. So that's been really fun. And um, so, yeah, I mean, even though, you know, the pandemic has a lot of negatives, just like in history, any negative situation uh, in society always yield some positive something good always comes out of something bad you know yes and and i'd like to think from what i've sensed from reading articles on you know i'm on facebook all day long because you know i'm again i'm an independent artist on the computer and the drawing board and the the sense i've gained gary is that i think one of the silver linings of this pandemic shutdown is that i think a lot of laymen men and women and kids I think are learning by being forced to that they can be independent producers. They can be creative. 
more creative than they ever thought. They can be self-productive. They don't have to go to work, you know, literally. Um, and I think that's been good for a lot of people. And I think companies that were spending a fortune on office space, you know, they're going to mm-hmm. think twice now when they know that half their workforce maybe can work from home and be happier. And I think statistics have shown studies that uh, people who work from home are more productive than working in the office. I don't know. You know, I'm, my brother is a 40-year IBMer, and he disputes that. Uh, he, he, and funny, he works from home. But uh-huh. he, he feels that most people, when they work from home, are lazy and unproductive and easily distracted. But I thought I read a study a couple months ago that with the shutdown, companies are discovering that their that they're people working at home are being more productive. I don't know if you've come across any studies like that that back that up. But Yeah, I haven't looked into it. Well, look into it and have it on my desk by Monday morning. <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying? I, yeah. I think that that's the sense I've gotten that now that's not going to be good for realtors that own those office space buildings, you know? So again, just like in every industrial revolution and, and societal change, there are going to be the winners and the losers. Look, the company zoom that we're talking on right now, hasn't that their stock jumped like 500%. Oh yeah. Okay. So this is what I'm saying. There's always going to be the winners and the losers. Um, so that's just life, right? But, um, but that's what we all have to do is look for the bright side, you know, and like I said, you know, I remember we had a, the electricity turned off for a couple of days in early August. We had a big storm on the East Coast. I'm in Connecticut. And um, it's when you lose electricity, that's when there's a real pandemic. You know, <laughs> I mean, think about it. Imagine how hard the shutdown would have been if there was also no electricity. Let's just say, uh, you know, the power grid in America went out. Right. Then you would see riots in the streets like that would make Black Lives Matter look like my pet goat. Do you know what I mean? I mean, what was the big problem? You're confined to your home where you have your computers, your internet, your modern entertainment piped in. You get takeout, you know, food ordered in. I mean, is that really so horrible? No. Yeah, losing your job is bad. I get it. But you know what I'm saying? The minute you lose electricity and you don't have entertainment and you don't have your TV shows and you don't have the power to run your computer, that's when people turn into Lord of the Flies. You know what I mean? Some people, I think. Like down here, we had lost our power for about a week and a half after Hurricane Sally. Yeah, but Gary, that's because you're in hurricane country. You're in an area of the country where people are used to losing power. I'm in wealthy white suburbia in Connecticut. And I remember Hurricane Sandy. We lost power for four days. There was only one Starbucks that had power. And they were letting people plug in, you know, their, their cell phones to get power. If I told you I went down there to try to plug in my cell phone, it was one step away from a riot of, of wealthy white people. Do you know what I mean? Fighting over these electrical outlets. So you're not going to survive in the bush. 
Uh, exactly. Are you kidding me? You are not a Bushman. No, no. <laughs> is the di- Listen, the difference between urban and rural is just that. When you're used to a rural lifestyle, you know how to survive in the wild. But when you're used to an electronic, modernized urban lifestyle, the minute you take away the power, which is, by the way, one of the great Twilight Zone episodes that I've lectured on, the monsters are due on Maple Street. It's all about you take away electrical power from modern Americans and they will eventually turn on each other. People, when they're deprived of their, of their creature comforts, like television, refrigerated food, you know, computer power. Yeah. Like I said, I've, I've witnessed it. But no, I mean, yeah, when you live out, you know, in the wild and in the rural areas, yeah, that's the difference. So, so you've never considered like going on a TV show naked and afraid? Uh, no, <laughs> but depending on how much, well, depending on how much they pay me, I'm a freelance artist. I can use the money. Maybe I would be naked and afraid if the price is right. <laughs> No, but I, I often thought that here I'm an artist. Let's say we did have the classic dystopian post-apocalyptic fallout. And, you know, I was wandering and came upon a band of survivors and they had to decide what can he provide for us? What can he do? I can't do anything except art. If you want an artist, he got me. But it's like, if you want me to forage for food, Good luck. That ain't going to happen. <laughs> I've, I've never, I, listen, I can't even get on a horse and kick it to make it, you know, go when you're horseback riding. Because I'm like, who am I to kick a horse, you know, and to make it do my bidding? I can't even do that. Can you fight? No. The only person I've you ever can't had. Fight a, at all? The only person I've ever fought in my life was my older brother. I've never been in a physical fight in my life. Other than with my brother when I was a kid. Can you fish? No, I've never fished in my life. <laughs> Listen, I can buy fish. I know how to go to the supermarket and buy meat. Yeah, if I had right. to survive in the wild, I would be a total vegetarian. All right, can you panhandle? What does that mean? You mean beg? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I've never begged, so I don't know. I'd have to find out. I think you could. No, no, no. I, 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 have, I have confidence in you. No, I would not beg. I would at least, <laughs> I would at least offer my services of like, hey, I'll tell your kids a story about Batman if you give me five bucks. You know what I mean? I don't, I'd always want to offer something. See, there never... you go. You're a storyteller. But this is my point. In a post-apocalyptic dystopian future, do they want storytellers? Yes, because they won't have TV. Okay. So it's, the, back, so it's okay. back to the campfire, man. Okay, so that's the only way I'll survive if ever that happened. Because otherwise, I don't know how to sew. I don't know how to, I mean, yeah, I can hammer on a nail and do a screwdriver, but that's about it. I'm good with two dimensions, not with three dimensions. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, but, but as long as you got that storytelling thing down, the gift of gab, 
You'll survive. Listen, they better like the fact that I could draw pictures. You, you can tell end. stories. You can negotiate deals. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Hey, let's not talk about it and make it happen, okay? <laughs> yeah, I'd rather talk about the world pre-apocalyptic disaster. <laughs> so um, tell me about these James Bond uh, seminars that you have. Um, I, I remember, they're not seminars. They're webinars. Webinars. Sorry. <laughs> Um, like I'm, I'm a bit of a James Bond fan. I mean, I have to say I'm more of a Roger Moore than fan. Ooh, oh yeah. Listen, yeah, listen, no offense to the homosexual community, but if James Bond were a closeted gay man in the 1970s, it would be Roger Moore. Sorry. I'm a Connery Bond guy. For me, it's only Connery. Yeah, but Connery. What was, it's that, only what, what was that one where, where Connery was wearing a jumpsuit? Okay, I think you're talking about Zardoz. was Goldfinger, wasn't it? What do you mean a jumpsuit? What do he, was you, wear, he was wearing a terry cloth jumpsuit. Okay, I think you're talking about a terry cloth swimsuit no, in Goldfinger. Well, not made out of terry cloth. Yeah, it was terry cloth. Let me Google it. Hold on one second. He, the only time he wore terry cloth was in the beginning of Goldfinger in, when he's in Miami before he beds down the girl that gets painted gold. If you're going to be specific about terry cloth, now a jumpsuit <laughs> is a different thing. He wore a black kind of, whatever you call it, action suit. I wouldn't call it a leotard, but, you know, it was his black kind of suit um, in the beginning of Goldfinger. But, yeah, terry cloth is only one scene in the beginning of oh, Goldfinger. It was a romper. That's what it was. Okay. That's the beginning of Goldfinger. Did you just Google it? Yep. What did you find out? Yep. It was in Goldfinger. It's yeah, what did I tell big. you? Yeah. So a romper means more than a bathing suit. He was wearing like, it was like a shirt with swim trunks made out of terry cloth or something. Now, now would you wear that? Me? Yeah. If I, if I had the body, listen, if I had the body of Connor, yeah. I'm telling you, Roger Moore wouldn't wear that. Okay. Listen to me. I weep. <laughs> I weep, I weep for the generation that came of age with Roger Moore's Bond. I'm sorry. I weep for you. Nice. Listen, in comic book terms, you know, <laughs> Spider-Man was originally created and drawn by the, one of the great comic book artists in history named Steve Ditko. But he had a dispute with Stan Lee, the editor at Marvel Comics, that he was collaborating with on Spider-Man. And he left in 1966 after being on the character for four years and establishing the costume and everything you know about Spider-Man. Well, when he left, that was right before Marvel rose to its ascendancy in the late 60s and eventually beat out industry giant DC Comics. You know, Marvel was the scrappy underdog, but they eventually beat out DC Comics, the home of Superman and Batman, Wonder Woman, all those. Uh-huh. Well... After Ditko left Spider-Man, one of Marvel's other artists named John Romita, who used to be a romance comic artist for DC, but he went to Marvel. Well, he eventually drew Spider-Man, and the character became more popular under Romita than it ever was under Ditko. And Romita drew the character for, let's see, from 66 to, I'm going to say, 1975, maybe. So a whole generation of comic book fans came of age 
with Romita's Spider-Man. And they believe that's the greatest Spider-Man. They think it's superior to Ditko's. Now, fans like me, we're purists. We think there's only 39 issues of a character called Spider-Man. The 39 issues Ditko drew. So it's a similar dispute. Spider-Man ever since has been drawn by other artists other than Romita. And each generation, because now we're talking about six decades, each generation has their favorite Spider-Man artist who they think because that's the one you grow up with. So now we have a generation that thinks Bond is Daniel Craig. Um, 15 years ago, it was Pierce Brosnan. The only post-Connery Bond I like, because he was most in the Connery mold, was Timothy Dalton. Those two films he did in the late 80s, and he was the right man at the wrong time, in a way. Mm. He had that dark look of Connery. Um, but the late 80s, you know, it was before the modern action film era. Um, and the films looked tawdry. They looked like uh, 1980s television almost. But I like the look of Dalton. So, like I said, right man at the wrong time. But otherwise, to me, it's only Connery. And even within the Connery um, Bond uh, canon, so to speak, I only like the first four films, which is what I'm doing my webinars on. I believe that with the film You Only Live Twice, the fifth Bond film that came out in 1967, that's where Bond jumps the shark, in my opinion. Really? I love that one. Okay. And I bet you it's because it was your first Bond movie as a kid. Am I right? I in 1967. Is that your first Bond movie as a kid? No, my first Bond movie was actually Roger Moore, Spy Who Loved Me. Okay, when did you see You Only Live Twice? Afterwards on TV. Yeah. Well, listen, you know, art, when you get right down to it, it's essentially a subjective discussion. You know, if you like something, you like something. If you don't like something, you don't like something. But, you know, art historians and critics, they do get together and they decide about a consensus, what is good, what is not good. Um, you don't have to like Picasso, but that doesn't mean he's not one of the greatest artists of the 20th century. Uh -huh. But you know what I mean? So that's the discussion always about art, and especially now in the age of the internet, Gary. I'm involved in Twilight Zone fandom and comic book fandom, Bruce Springsteen fandom. And everybody now, the internet has made opinions, obviously, very democratic in the sense of, Everybody has an opinion. You know, there's 156 Twilight Zone episodes. Mm -hmm. One of my least favorite is somebody's greatest episode and vice versa. Well, I hope it's not the recipe for serving humans. To serve man? Yes. That, in many polls, has risen to become the number one favorite Twilight Zone episode, but it's not one of my favorites. When's your favorite? Well, I got a few. There's so many great episodes. But I just want to finish my point ab okay. about the fact that when we're talking about, for instance, Bond films and which is, you know, is You Only Live Twice a good Bond film or is it not a good one? Is it a great Bond film? Why is it great? Why is it not great? When I say it jumped the shark, I can be specific what I mean by that and, and why I believe it's 50% watchable. And that gets into the nitty-gritty details of the film you only live twice. And at the same time, 
and that's what my webinars are about. I make a case for why the first four Bond films with Connery, Dr. No from Rush With Love, Goldfinger and Thunderball, I believe are what I call the Connery Bond canon. Those are the four great Bond films. Those are the four great Connery films. In my opinion, it jumps the shark with You Only Live Twice. Uh, it's a, you Only Live Twice to me is 50% watchable and 50% you know, cringing. Okay, so I always, I always compared Bond to Our Man Flint. Yeah, but it's more like the other way around. Our Man Flint was a spoof of Bond. James Coburn was brilliant in those fighting scenes. Now, it's funny you say that because the first Flint film, Our Man Flint, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Our Man Flint comes out in the spring of 1966, a couple months after Thunderball came out. But it came out a year before You Only Live Twice. So it was in a weird way, this interim Bond film. Now we going to see it as kids, we didn't know at first that it was gonna be a kind of a spoof of Bond and a, a very wry and sly satire of Bond. We just thought it was another secret agent movie called Flint. Yeah. But I gotta tell you, man, when I say you only have twice jumped the shark, I believe our man Flint is as great as any of the Connery Bond films. I love our man Flint. I do too. I think In fact, I like it more than Bond. Okay, well, this is what I'm saying. Some people, and by the way, our man Flint is better than In Like Flint, the follow-up that came out a year later. But our man Flint, man, the writing is so witty because it is a satire on Bond, but it's played so well and so straight that it, su it succeeds, I think, at being both a sly satire and also a straight-ahead, you know, action spy movie, whatever you want to call it. Right. And, and, and I think it's better that you only live twice. And I think, like I said, after the first four Bond movies, I then place Flint as number five, like... Right after the great Connery Bond movies, I put the first Flint film, absolutely. That's awesome. That's always been one of my favorite movies. First of all, great cast. You got Lee J. Cobb in the kind of, if you know the character, the comic character, the spirit, he had the commissioner, Dolan. And Lee J. Cobb looks like Dolan come to life. But you'd have to know the comic book reference I'm referring to. But he was such a great actor. He was a legend even at the time. So to have him in the film as James Coburn's, you know, sidekick in a way, that was great. Coburn was brilliant. Yeah, he, he, he was great. But he played it straight with a slight wink in his eye. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you know, every, and, and it was ahead of its time. Remember he had a little pen attachment that was almost like a kind of an iPhone, like yeah. a thousand and one uses. <laughs> So, you know, and the way he put himself in a state of uh, people thought he was dead with that, the watch that had the little TikTok thing. I mean, uh -huh. I remember, I remember, but I'm telling you, man, I love our man Flint. I might have to do a webinar now on the Flint movies. I think you have to.
Yeah, why not? People probably, there's a lot of people out there that don't even know they exist. Well, nowadays, you can find everything on the internet, everything streaming. I bet you R. Man Flint is probably on Netflix. Who knows? Maybe. I'm going to have to check after I record this. But I've got my DVD of the Flint movies right next to my Bond films. Great. So, so what are the, how, how are the webinars presented and like what kind of material you'll, will you cover? Okay, so first of all, let's let everybody in your audience know that all they have to do to get a ticket to one of my webinars is go to newyorkadventureclub.com or nyadventureclub.com. Very simple. And you'll see their smorgasbord calendar. They have like three webinars a day, morning, noon, and night, literally. Um, and tickets are only $10. And the great thing about it is that a lot of people think, oh, I can't make the webinar. I'm working or I'm not going to be around. So they don't buy a ticket. But when you buy a ticket to these New York Adventure Club webinars, it allows you to watch a recording of the live webinar for up to a week afterwards at your leisure. And think about it. When you watch a recording of a webinar, it's like you're seeing it live anyway. The only thing that's not live is the chat board which is always kind of fun. You know, people chat during your presentation and that's always kind of lively, especially if I'm showing video clips of multiple minutes, I can participate on the chat board. Mm -hmm. So I just want to let people know that right up front, all the webinars are everything's nyadventureclub.com. And that's all you have to do. But in, in a webinar like um, the Bond webinars, I basically amass, I watched the first four films. I took note of the key scenes in each film that I thought if you're gonna, if you're gonna kind of do an overview of these epic films, you gotta show what I call the key scenes that are the most memorable about the film. But then I also amassed all the background material I could find on each film, especially video clips of you know production films or background stills or all the stuff that is available not only on the internet but you know how many people when they buy a dvd of a great film actually watch all the features and the audio commentary and you know there's always files and files that they stock on these dvds i don't think a lot of people i mean you got to be a real fan to make the time to watch those features. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I never watch that stuff. But that's my point. The Bond films are loaded when you buy the DVDs with these backup features and, and films and stills and pictures and interviews. So basically what I did was I just did my research. I watched all of the extras of each film and then I, the same thing, I excerpted the the, the greatest hits of the extras. Hmm. And then I, I did my research and I knew the history of the Bond films and how they were made. I've read enough. I've got enough books about them. But basically, I just, as a good editor, I laid out all the video clips from the actual movie. I laid out all the video clips of background films. I mean, you know, in Thunderball, Ken Adam, the set designer, took home movies while on the set. And they have, and they're on the DVD of Thunderball. But how many people have actually sat and watched it? Well, guess what? 
in my webinar, when we get to that point in the film where that scene takes place, I'll show the Ken Adam home movie that lasts like five minutes. Hmm. And it's full of stuff like that. Um, you know, they, they made, you know, special features at the time of the films, you know, so there's one great excerpt of, you know, they're interviewing Connery on the set of Goldfinger, the Fort Knox set. And, you know, he's talking about what it's like to be James Bond. I mean, it's really priceless stuff. So I think for people that know the films, fans of the Bond films, even if you know the films like the back of your hand, like I do, because I've seen every Connery Bond film a thousand times ever since I was a kid. Um, I think the way I coordinate the material, the way I talk about it, I spend a lot of time seamlessly segueing from image to image. And I show a lot of still images, you know, production stills and other things, posters, all the memorabilia. I show some of the advertising films they made at the time. It's a real potpourri of, of, of Bondania, if I'm using that word right. Not mania, ain't, you know, like <laughs> Bondana or whatever you want right. to call it. Um, but even if you know the films, I guarantee you, if you come to my webinar, let's say the first one, Thursday night, October 15th at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, the Connery Bond Cannon Part 1 covers Dr. No and From Russia With Love, the first two films. And even if you're a fan of those films and you know them like, again, the back of your hand, I guarantee you, you'll come away from my webinar having learned something new that you didn't know about the films you love. What was, the most, what was the most surprising thing you learned? In general? About yeah. oh, the whole? Yeah, there must, have, there must have been like one detail that really just uh, caught you off guard. Well, you know, listen, listen, that's a big question because I got to now sift through in my mind like like a lot of stuff and i'm trying to think um i mean it's an excellent question but i really have to stop and think about each film and what was okay so well this is a great way to just discuss the bond films in general and what made them so special you know uh what's the best way to say this um Saltzman and Broccoli, the producers that brought the Bond movies to the world, um, their attention to detail and their quality control was really incredible in the sense of even bit parts. Like when they went to Jamaica to do the first film, Dr. No, there was a scene where they needed a chauffeur to drive Connery, and it turns out the chauffeur is actually a bad guy working for Dr. No. And I found out through my research that he was Jamaica's number one young leading actor. Now, it's nobody ever heard of, and he never became famous, but at the time, in 1962, Jamaica, when the Bond production company got to Jamaica, they didn't just get any schnook to play this tiny little role that, you know, you're on screen for five minutes. They got the best actor in Jamaica. The guy that did the location shooting for Dr. No 
was a guy named Chris Blackwell. Now, does the name Chris Blackwell sound familiar at all to you? Yes, it does. Who is he? I have no idea, but I know I've heard the name. Oh, that's no fair. You can't say that. Yeah, I can. It's true. Are the, are the judges going to accept that? Oh, yes. I know him, but I don't know him. Uh, Gary, I'm calling you out on this. Then uh, you don't know him. Okay. I'm just busting your balls. I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> I'll bust your balls. Okay. Chris Blackwell was the eventual founder of Island Records that brought reggae to America. Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, Chris Blackwell, Island Records. Yes. He was... No. What? No, I know. because I think I've read some biographies on Bob Marley. Right. So, young Chris Blackwell in 1962, years before he would found Island Records, he was living in Jamaica, and I think he knew Ian Fleming or something like that. And when they needed somebody to scout locations in Jamaica for Dr. No, they got Chris Blackwell, young Chris Blackwell. And from there on, you know, one thing led to another in his career, and he eventually became Island Records' Chris Blackwell. So how's that for a little factoid? I, I had no idea. Well, there you go. And my webinars are full of things like that. Things that I'm surprised to learn. Listen, I thought I knew, you know, everything there is to know. But when you actually do your research, when you're doing something in depth, you're going to come across things that even something that you love and think you know everything about, you're going to learn a lot of new things. See, now that you've asked me, I'm thinking about like each film and like, you know, what I learned, what I learned about each film in order to share it with people. It's like, wow, I can't wait to share this with people because I just learned it and it's blowing my mind. You know, anything, anything about the cars. Okay. So when they introduced the car and Goldfinger in the backup DVD uh, features, at the time, they, they, they made a little featurette where they got a guy from Aston Martin to show you the inner workings of the car with things that they didn't even show in the Bond film. So the way I'm going to do the webinar is first I'm going to show the classic scene with Q when he shows Connery the Aston Martin and Goldfinger. Uh -huh. And then when that scene's over... I'm going to show this little couple-minute clip that Aston Martin made in 1964 to show you another side of the Aston Martin that you've never known existed. Things that, again, they didn't show in the Bond film. They didn't have time or the scenes or whatever. So how's that? That's good. That's a good one. I knew there had to be some car stuff in there. Well, I'm not the a car, listen. The cars I, are always a big deal in the Bond movie. Yeah, but you know what? They're not a big deal with me. I care more about Connery and the the you know that than I. I'm not a big car guy. But <clears throat> let me tell you something. Uh, if you're talking about cars, I show you in the Goldfinger part of my. That would be the second part two on Thursday, October 22nd, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm doing the next two films, Goldfinger and Thunderball. But I show you. I excerpted and edited the key car scenes from Goldfinger. So trust me, if you're a fan of the Aston Martin, 
you come to my second bond webinar and I guarantee you, you'll enjoy what I show you about you, uh, the bond films. I'm trying to think of what was that show that got, where the, it was a TV show where a guy had an Aston Martin with a bar in it. Okay. I it was think, a TV show. I think you might be confusing this with a show that predates the Bond films by a couple of years called Burke's Law. No, that's not it. That was with Gene Barry as a playboy detective in Los Angeles driving around in a Rolls Royce no, or this, something. This, this, was, this was British. Okay, was, well, now, now you're getting uh, esoteric. I don't, really, well, I don't know really what you're talking about. But Martin. it's funny you mentioned the Aston Martin and something oh. I learned. Because it was a spy show, too. Well, but again, I don't know. You could be talking about The Prisoner, but I don't, I, don't, I don't think he drove an Aston Martin. Um, but I'd rather not talk about the cars. That's the least. Right. But I'll, give, I'll, give you, <laughs> I'll give you one last Aston Martin car factoid. That was also something I learned from watching the DVD extras. So Connery only went to the, ver to the first three Bond premieres, Dr. No from Usher Love and Goldfinger. After Goldfinger, he never went to another Bond premiere. You know why? Why? Because in the Goldfinger premiere, which took place in Paris, he drove down the Champs-Élysées in the Aston Martin. And when he paused at one of the intersections, a female fan literally jumped through the passenger window of the car onto Connery's lap. Huh. Uh, Gary, hold back your enthusiasm. I mean, I, what, did I just stun you into silence with that? Yes, you did. Anyway, in this day and age where fans, you know, sometimes murder their idols, this is 1964, you know, right after Beatlemania hit. And it's like, that so freaked out Connery that he never went to another Bond premiere ever again. Huh. You think and somebody, you I've think, got footage. I, I, I didn't and, know Connery would feel fear. Well, when you have a fan jumping into your car, Gary. This happened to me. Well, Gary, you're not Sean Connery. Right. But I've had people just jump into my car. Uh, Gary, come on, man. It's a whole different thing. All right. I'm just saying, I wouldn't be afraid of that. that, that was and, and neither would Roger Gary, Moore. Gary, Roger, Gary. Moore, Roger Moore would have been like, all right, cool. Gary, Gary, you're driving a car for a publicity stunt. There's fans screaming outside. A woman jumps through the window. Mm -hmm. What if she was crazy? What if she was what if she had an, again, nobody in 1964 was thinking about stuff like that. But you cannot say, and I'm not saying Connery's afraid of a girl or she was a woman, whatever the <laughs> hell she was. But I'm just saying, you can't say that that would not freak you out. No. And I think it's very judgmental for you to say decades later, oh, what's the big deal? Come on, man. That's not fair. Neither is a Terry Cloth romper. And that's a whole other story. <laughs> By the way, the thing about Connery, 
was that the guy was so well built, like the perfect, you know, he was once a, a Mr. Olympia or something. He was a bodybuilder. Um, a lot of people don't, again, maybe don't know that or forget that, but um, Connery was like a perfect, you know, whatever he was, six foot three, perfect physical specimen, not muscle bound, but a, an incredibly well-built leading man. That's part of his appeal. But he moved, according to producers, like a cat. And that's why he got hired as Bond. They saw him walking across the parking lot outside their office when they interviewed him. And they said, for a guy that big, he moves like a cat. And when you watch the Bond films, the early ones, and you see Connery move, you get that sense. And that's what part of the mystique of how he played Bond. But uh, why did I bring that up? I was segueing to something. Um, oh, you talk about the terry cloth thing that he wore in Goldfinger. Connery was so good looking and so well built that the guy could literally wear anything and kind of, you know, in fact, in, Th in Thunderball, there's a great line from the Felix Leiter character when he puts the, um, the giant uh, scuba tank on his back at the end of the film mm -hmm. that Q branch gave him. And, uh, you know, the Bond character mumbles something like, uh, everything in the kitchen sink. And the Felix Leiter character says to him, on you, everything looks good. And that was the key to Connery's visual appeal is that literally whatever he wore, he looked good in. I mean, that blue terry cloth thing that, it, what do you call it, a romper? Yes. I think, again, no offense to gay people, but when I say it looks gay, to me, it looks gay. Not that that's a bad thing to quote Seinfeld, but I'm saying Connery pulled it off. I think in Thunderball, he goes around half the film wearing a pink bathing suit. <laughs> I mean, but again, he's, he's Sean Connery at the peak of his, you know, physical manliness, and he can pull it off. And that's one of the great things about the Connery bomb. Since you brought it up. Well, I, I can tell that you are a Sean Connery Bond fan. Are you kidding me? Don't quit your day job and become a detective <laughs> with that incredible uh, uh, perception <laughs> that you just displayed. Yeah, but, you get that feeling? Well, I'm a podcaster, so I have to look really deeply into things. Yeah, I know, I know. But I'm saying, you know, congratulations <laughs> on that incredible insight. <laughs> I am all about the insight. Yes. 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 So, so uh, what you also have like a lot um, with the um, comic book stuff. Are you an illustrator? Yes, I, I'm an illustrator who works in a comic book style, which is not being a comic book illustrator, which a lot of people think when they look at my stuff. Okay. Um, because I never really wanted to be. Listen, I grew up reading comics. They taught me everything I really know about art. They've given me a livelihood, but and I'm an historian of comic book history, the DC and Marvel comics I grew up with that made me become an artist. But I've never actually drawn for the comic book companies. I wanted to bring comic book art into the commercial art world and make an impact in the same way Roy Lichtenstein brought comic book art into the fine art world in the 1960s and became the preeminent pop artist. I never felt commercial comics were as good looking as the comic book art itself in the comic books. Right. So 
I didn't want to be a comic artist. First of all, I have a short attention span in terms of I, I can only work on a single image and then I got to move on to the next thing. The idea of doing 24 pages a month of one single you know, story or something, to me, that's like a year's worth of work. God bless these guys that can churn out that amount of work. I'm a single image guy, so I became an illustrator. But I work in a comic book style. So when you go to my website, arlenschumer.com, there's an illustration subpage, just like there's one for Bruce Springsteen, Twilight Zone, comic book history, and you'll see one illustration, and then you'll see the history of my illustration career mm -hmm. um, that I've been doing for literally decades. So you're from New Jersey. You do comic book style art. So I had to ask, do you know Kevin Smith? No. I've, uh, I never met him, but I was actually one of the first guests on his show that is no longer airing on the AMC network, Comic Book Men. Mm -hmm. But it, it ran from 2012 to just a few years ago. Did you ever see that show? No, I didn't. Well, I was one of the first guests. It was like a, a comic book version of Pawn Stars, you know, where you go into his, he has a store in New Jersey. Yeah, uh, Red Bank. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like Pawn Stars. People walk in and they think, you know, making believe that they're selling something and they haggle over it. But it's, it's comic book pop culture related. But I'm not a big fan of Kevin Smith, so I'd rather not discuss him. Okay. I had to ask because of the connections. Yeah, I know. But I'm just saying I could talk about him more, but I had a very negative experience being on his show. And, um, you know, I don't got much good to say about Kevin Smith. Right, right. I, ha I had a guest who had a negative experience on the TV show Wife Swap. So. Is that a joke? Is that, a, that sounds like a, a setup to a joke. No, no, it's not a joke. It was a real, I was doing the, uh, I was actually interviewing a guy about Bigfoot. And uh, apparently he had a bad experience in the TV show Wife Swap. Well, it sounds like the setup to a joke. You should actually turn that into a joke. No, it's just a true story. In other words, imagine as a setup, a guy had a bad experience on Wife Swap. He, now you got to come up with a punchline. Well, that's it, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, so how about this Bruce Springsteen stuff? How about it? You hung out with the boss? No. What's your take on him? By the way. Well, actually, yeah, I'll tell hold you. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Okay. You, you just referred to him as the boss, right? He is the boss. What if I told you? I was the art director of his first fan magazine in the late 70s called Thunder Road. I'm a major Bruce Springsteen fan. I've written articles, essays. If you go to the Bruce Springsteen subpage of my website, you'll see the artwork I did for one of his tours and other projects that I've done based on his, his music and his career. What if I told you, Gary, I have never once referred to him as the boss. Why not? Okay. This gets into a little pop culture Bruce Springsteen history. Number one, he's never liked the term the boss. You know why? Why? Well, he's, he's of the 60s generation, the counterculture. He was considered, you know, a freehold hippie. 
long hair, part of that generation. The establishment, the man, was the boss, which was a leftover thing in the late 60s taken from their parents' generation in the 30s with the unions when the boss was the bad guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, nobody likes the boss, man. Nobody likes the boss. The boss is the bad guy. So flash forward to the late 60s. Bruce is forming his bands that become the future E Street Band. And because he is the leader of the band, they're his songs, he is the boss of the band. Yeah. The other band members, to kind of bust his balls, would refer to him as the boss. But it was, it was, they were busting his balls because the boss was the bad guy. Uh huh. The establishment. Well, he was the establishment to the rest of the band. Well, not the establishment. He was the leader of the band. It, their paychecks depended on him. So, yes, technically he was the, quote, boss, but the term being called the boss was they were busting his balls. It was a negative term. This had to have been Clarence Clemens. Clemens. Clemens, yes. The point I'm trying to make is the term the boss for Bruce eventually obviously took hold, but Bruce never liked it. But by the time he tried to put an end to it, it was too late. It took hold. And now he's the boss. But even he doesn't like it, and I have never once referred to him as that, out of respect for him. It's very kind of you. Well, yeah, that plus 350 gets me a latte in Starbucks. <laughs> I'm just saying... I consider him the king, not Elvis Presley. Bruce is the king. He's not the boss. Bruce is the greatest rock and roller ever. He gave us the greatest albums. He gave us the greatest tours. He's still touring, and he's still putting out albums. October 23rd, another E Street Band album is coming out. Nobody else has the career of Bruce Springsteen in popular music in terms of Nobody has been both critically and popularly successful as Bruce Springsteen. Some people might be more popularly successful, but they're not as critically successful and vice versa. Bruce has been as critically successful as he's been popularly successful. And that is unique. How's he still playing without Clarence? He's playing with Clarence's nephew, who can also play a pretty good saxophone. Nobody will ever blow the horn like Clarence Clemens. I mean, great. Listen, I'm not a big jazz guy, but I'm telling you, man, while there have been so many great black jazz players and white as well, Coltrane, uh, um, um, Coleman Hawkins, Bird, you know, the list is endless. Right. Nobody played a rock and roll sax solo like Clarence Clemens, period. Nobody in the history of the saxophone ever had the reaction to them playing saxophone like Clarence Clemens got in his prime. When he stepped up to the stage to play one of those sax solos, the only way I can describe the reaction of the crowd, imagine the seventh game of the World Series, bottom of the ninth, two outs, bases loaded. The team is down. 
by three runs. And, and the guy hits a grand slam walk-off home run to win, the bottom, to win the World Series in the bottom of the ninth inning of the seventh game. Can you imagine mm-hmm. what, the, what the crowd sound of that would be? Silence. No, silence. When the ball gets hit for a grand slam, imagine the crowd. Oh, after the ball hit. Gary, <laughs> are you on like a like sleeping pill? What's going on with you? Am I talking another language? <laughs> silence. The opposite of silence. Madness. An eruption, a roar. When Clarence Clemens would step up to the microphone and play one of those sax solos in his prime with the E Street Band, the audience reacted as if it was the ninth inning. Do I have to go through the whole metaphor again? I think so. Jesus Christ. (laughs) You're killing me, man. You're killing me. This is good entertainment, man. For you, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, I wish I could say the same. Let's see what the audience thinks and then when they've heard this. My audience will love this. They better. <laughs> anyway, did I make my point? Right. It, 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 all this has to be happening at the Stone Pony, right? No. I'm yeah. talking about, well, I've seen him at the Stone Pony, but that's not, no, I, I'm talking about arenas, Madison Square Garden. The Meadowlands, Burn Arena, the stadium, all the places I've seen him. Right. I've seen him in the Stone Pony, but I'm just saying. The Pony's the best. Well, the Pony's great, but I'm saying there's nothing like being in the eye of the hurricane in an arena when Bruce and the E Street Band were playing at their zenith and the people in the boondock seats in the rafters were up on their feet dancing along with the rest of the audience. When you turned your head, if you were sitting in the first couple rows and you turned your head around to look at the back of the arena and you saw what you saw, that's what made a Bruce Springsteen concert the greatest. So you, let me tell you something. So in how, in so 09, how, Gary, Gary, let me yeah. finish this one last thing. Okay. In 2009, Bruce Springsteen played his first youth festival at Bonnaroo in Tennessee. Okay. And I decided to drive from Connecticut to Tennessee just to see how would Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band come across to a crowd of basically 20-somethings, most of whom would have never have seen Bruce or probably even liked him. So I drove all the way to Tennessee, to Bonnaroo, my first festival, just to see Bruce Springsteen. So imagine it's an outdoor, you know, show on the lawn in Bonnaroo. Mm-hmm. And I get up in the front in the pit, as they say, and I'm surrounded by a bunch of 20-somethings, mostly guys. And most of them had never seen Bruce Springsteen, and most of them didn't even like him. And the undercard before Bruce was the band Wilco. Now, Wilco is a great band. Jeff Tweedy, great songs. Wilco was their idea of a great rock and roll band. Now, no offense to Wilco, but just like no offense to every other band, including the Rolling Stones and bands like that, there's only one 
Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, period. And I just stood there with my arms crossed, looking at these 20-somethings, knowing that in about 10 minutes, the tops of their heads would be blown off by Bruce Springsteen. And what if I told you, Gary, that's exactly what happened. Bruce and the band came out and opened up with that song Radio Nowhere, which was uh, the lead single from that album, I think, in 09, uh, Working on a Dream or whatever. But I'm telling you, man, everything I predicted came true. By the middle of the first song, these 20-somethings were high-fiving each other, hugging each other. They couldn't believe what they were witnessing. And that made the 14-hour ride or whatever it took to go to Tennessee from Connecticut, that made it all worthwhile. So is Bruce Springsteen the best performer uh, that you've you're seen not gonna, Wait, wait, wait. You're not going to say anything about that story? You're just going to go to the next, the next question? Yeah. Gary, <laughs> I just gave you a great story. You got nothing to say about that. <laughs> This is supposed to be a conversation, not a job interview. Uh, so, Mr. Schumer, uh, where do you see yourself in five years? <laughs> yeah, not on this podcast. So, yeah, I mean, I get it. 20-year-olds like the boss. That, that's what you gleaned from that whole story? Yeah. Oh, man, you're killing me. You're killing me. Were you bad in school when they gave you those reading comprehension tests where you had to read a paragraph and then they asked the questions to test whether you actually comprehended what you just read? Yeah. Guess what? If I were grading your response to my great Bonnaroo story, I'm giving you a D. If that's your response, oh, 20-somethings like the boss, too. A great response. <laughs> Yeah, that's like that's like a, a D. A D. A D, as in dog. You know, I'll I'll take a D because I never really went to school, so. Yeah, I can tell. I, I was one of those people that would cut class. Yeah, it shows. I think you need to go back to school. <laughs> no, yeah, man. there must be some adult learning center that you can take <laughs> online. Come on. Come on, I live in. Alabama. Hey, listen, listen. Come to my <laughs> webinar. Yeah, that's your problem. Come to my webinars. You'll learn something. <laughs> Uh, are we going to edit out all of this laughing downtime? I bet you the podcast will be like a half hour long. No, I don't do any editing. I told you that. I know, but I'm saying you got to take out all this laughing you're doing. Well, you're funny. Well, excuse me. So, how about my question? What was it? Is Bruce Springsteen the best live performer you've ever seen? Yes, and I think he's the best in the history of rock and roll. Now, I never saw the Beatles. Most people never saw the Beatles. But I'd like to say I've seen all the great modern bands. I saw Led Zeppelin. I saw the Rolling Stones. I saw The Who. I saw Elton John, Jethro Tull, Rod Stewart. I'm trying to think in my life all the great bands I've seen over the years. Uh, never, I, I finally saw, well, I didn't see Pink Floyd, but I did see Roger Waters do the wall in Yankee stadium. So I've seen my share of great rock shows. I think Elvis Costello in his prime, 
Um, but unless you've seen Bruce, and I'm assuming you've never seen him live, have you? No, I haven't. I've been to the Stone Pony, though. Big deal. If you haven't seen Bruce Springsteen, it's your loss. But I'm saying he's 71 now, but, you know, you miss seeing the greatest live rock and roll performer of our generation. You missed it, man. No, I didn't miss it. Oh, yes, you did. No. The best rock and, pro- rock and roll performer of our generation is Lux yeah. Interior. Oh, Jesus Christ. Are you going to play this? Esot- oh, were you a DJ on FM radio? No. Are you playing esoteric songs by people nobody's heard of? You've never heard of the cramps? I don't really listen. Are you going to play that game with me of naming esoteric punk bands? No. Jesus Christ. No, but, but I will say that like, definitely when I saw them, they had an impact on me. Like Bruce I get Christine it. I idea. get Well, listen, I get it. And that's the beauty of art and music and everything. I'm just saying, man, you miss seeing the greatest rock and roll performer of your lifetime live on stage. So you're saying he is better than Zeppelin. I saw Led Zeppelin. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You saw Zeppelin, you saw there's Bruce. No, well, there's nobody like Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band, and only by seeing him live can you know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, he's just... And listen, you've seen films of him. You've seen videos of him. They're pretty good, but nothing duplicates actually being at a live Bruce show. Okay, and by well, the way, Bruce got his worldwide audience, <clears throat> not from record sales, even though <clears throat> record sales came later. Bruce got to where he is by playing live. That's how he built his audience. Kind of like the Grateful Dead. In a way, yeah. Just more rock and roll than the Dead. But yeah, in the same way, the Dead, and they, along with Bob Dylan, I think Dead, Dylan, and Bruce have the three greatest fan bases of, um, you know, of, of live recordings and all that, you know, bootlegs and all that stuff. But, yeah, I would say the closest analog to Bruce's career would be The Grateful Dead. In the, in the sense of record sales for The Grateful Dead, they came way late in their career if they ever came at all. But it was mostly their live shows, obviously, that made their legend. Um, but, yeah, so, so Bruce got to where he is based on his live performance. Now, you are the perfect audience Gary, for my upcoming webinar about a retrospective of Bruce's greatest live performances that have been captured on film or video. And that's going to be Friday, November 6th with New York Adventure Club from 8 to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, Gary, I'm going to make you a deal. I... I will guarantee if you watch that webinar, uh-huh. it will blow your mind. You will have never seen live performances of music like what I'm going to show you. Okay? Okay. Now, we have to have some kind of wager. How about this? Double your money back if not satisfied. Hmm. Okay. It's only a $10 ticket, big guy. I'm a podcaster. I'm just telling you. (laughs) I'm just telling you. You know, uh, it's going to, okay, how about this? I'll make you a deal. 
I'm going to treat you. I'm going to comp you into my Bruce webinar. How's that? Okay. That'll be my gift to you since this podcast is your gift to me. This podcast will change your life. No, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> I'll let you know if that happens, if that kicks in. Oh, yeah. But, um, again, NewYorkAdventureClub.com, November 6th. I'm telling you, man, that webinar, what, when you see what I show you, it's going to blow your mind. And I guarantee it. Like, like Joe Namath predicting the Jets would beat the Colts in the 1969 Super Bowl. I guarantee – what song does that come from? Guaranteed to blow your mind. Was that a Queen song? Anytime. Was that a Beatles song? A line guaranteed to blow your mind anytime. Where does that come from? Line guaranteed to blow your mind? Guaranteed to blow your mind. It sounds anytime. like cocaine. No, 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 no. Yeah, Gar- a, li- a line, no. a line no. that's going to blow your mind is cocaine. Okay, but that's not the song I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's Eric Clapton. I know, but that's a different song. I'm thinking you know, of a she melody. Don't lie, she don't no, lie. Yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. I'm thinking of a different song. And it goes something like, guaranteed to blow your mind anytime. Wait, oh, driving that train high on cocaine. No, it's not that. Okay, okay. I'm sorry I went off this uh, tangent. (laughs) Okay. It's either a Queen song or it's a Beatles song, but I'm telling you, my webinar on Bruce Live is guaranteed to blow your mind. Even without the cocaine? Oh, you're killing me, man. You're <laughs> killing me. I'm dying over here. I'm dying here. <laughs> <laughs> we should just do a podcast where we both just laugh all the time. Just the whole the whole you're podcast. Two guys laughing. Man. Yeah, so Make me a star. Get me on stage. Oh, dude, I have a lot of listeners, so so yeah, well, my are gonna love you. They better pony up. You, you're gonna be famous after this episode. Really? Yes. Really? Yes. I you're, you're gonna have promises. so many emails. Don't make promises you can't keep. Why do I stun <laughs> you into silence? Why is there this dead space? After I'm done talking, where I don't know whether you're going to react, laugh, not laugh, but there's this dead silence. Am I really bowling you over where you're just speechless? You're blowing my mind, man. I think so. <laughs> I hope the audience is going with you on this. Well, this is, I can tell why, though. I can see why you're going to be on this nightlight radio show. Did I not say I have the gift of gab? Because, because I'm, I'm sure you're just going to blow that audience away on October 14th. Okay, now, the nightlight radio show is different from the webinars. Let's be clear. The radio show is, is with the free? night. Yes, the radio show is free. It's uh, on the Blog Talk Radio Network. It's called Nightlight. And uh, if people really want to find my events, some of the easiest ways is just to go to my website to my blog page where I list all of my current events with all of their appropriate links. So arlenschumer.com is simpler than blog talk radio. And then you got to go to, you got to find the nightlight part and then you got to find me on nightlight. So it's a little difficult, 
But just go to ArlenTrumer.com to the blog page. and I'm going to post a link to that in the notes of this episode so my listeners can find it. Oh, yeah, listen. The, the important links are NewYorkAdventureClub.com or NYAdventureClub.com mm-hmm. and ArlenSchumer.com. I'll put those make sure, make sure you spell my name right, S-C-H. Just like Chuck Schumer, Amy Schumer, I'm the unknown Schumer. I'm the third unknown Schumer. Wait, isn't that the guy in Congress? Yeah, Chuck, Chuck Schumer. And by the way, Chuck and Amy found out they're related. Really? Now, Schumer is not that common of a Jewish name. It's not like Goldberg or Cohen. So I wouldn't be surprised because people back then in the old country, they didn't keep records. The fact that Chuck and Amy found out they're related, I wouldn't be surprised because there's not a lot of Schumers. I bet you we are related if we went into the research or the DNA test or whatever you got to do. Because you know why? Every time I look at Amy Schumer, not so much with Chuck, but I got to tell you, when I look at Amy Schumer, I flash on her eyes a resemblance like where I think she looks like she could be part of my family. So I bet you we are because, you know, most East Coast American Jews were all from the same Eastern European Russian bullia base. You know, my father was from the Austria-Hungary area. My grandmother was from the Ukraine. Um, and that's where, again, we're all from that same, you know, immigration influx in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, so yeah, I bet you, um, I bet you I am related to Chuck or Amy, but I hope one day to become as well known as them, maybe thanks to this podcast. You probably will. You know, and I have the same thing too. Every time I meet somebody with name Cacciolillo, I'm related to him. Oh my God. Oh my God! How many? How often have you been using that line? Achita, what? Does that's that last, actually, listen, that's the last name. I know. Oh, thanks for the newsflash. <laughs> oh my God! Does that name translate into anything? Does it mean something in Italian? Little Hunter. Ah, there you go. That's, well, that's why. I, that's why I can survive in the bush, and you can't. Exactly. So let me team up with you like uh, Huckleberry Finn and what's his name? Uh, One day you might need me to survive. You're darn tootin' I'm going to need you. <laughs> I'm, t- I- I- I'm admitting that I'm totally useless except to draw pictures and tell stories. I hope in the post-apocalyptic world that they're going to need somebody like me. Yeah, right? and then you call me, you come down here to Alabama, and I'll protect you. What a horrible future. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, just by talking about it, we're sending a signal out to the universe to make it happen. Can we not talk about my future in Alabama in a post-apocalyptic world? What a nightmare. But at least I'll have you, my friend, my protector. Exactly. Yeah, please don't make make me your bitch. What would you do without me, really? That's what I'm saying. die. are you going to make me your bitch? Do I have to be your bitch no, on no, top of it? No, you don't have to be my bitch. Not okay, okay. As long as I'm not your bitch, I'm okay with that. No, I wouldn't do that to anybody. Okay, okay. Then I'm okay with it. Okay. When, 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 when do you want me to show up? Uh, <laughs> what can I bring? I, I, I would show up probably after November 3rd. Ooh, let's not go there. <laughs> he, he who shall not be named. <laughs> 
I don't want to talk about it. Ugh. You brought it up, man. Oh, you brought you, it up. You, you said post-apocalyptic. Yeah, that's, well, when, that's when the apocalypse is going to happen. Yeah, the apocalypse is happening right now in the Supreme Court. If they put what's her name on. Listen, this country is screwed for the next generation, thanks to he who shall not be named. <laughs> nah, they'll fix it. Fix it? Yeah. Please, please don't tell me you're pro-Trump. Please. No, I, I don't vote, actually. I'm, I am, I am anti-government anarchist. You, guess what? It, it was the non-voters like you that gave us Trump. My, my vote wouldn't count down here. No matter what I that, voted for it, in Alabama, the is going to go to Trump. Excuse me. It was thinking like that that made people sit on their asses. 50% of the eligible voters in 2016 did not vote. 50%. Because that they were given, given the worst choice in history. Excuse me. Since you brought this up, Hillary Clinton would have been not only a fabulous president, but God forbid she was actually a politician. And in this pandemic, gee, what a surprise that America elected somebody with zero experience in politics. And when we actually needed a politician to run the country in a pandemic, what a surprise. Nobody in that administration actually knows how to govern. What a shock. Hmm. I don't want to go to the subject if you're going to bring it up because I hate Trump. I hate every Republican. And I got to tell you, man, non-voters like you, mm -hmm. you lazy bastard, you handed the election to Trump by your inaction. So if you're going to pretend you're going to justify that to me, then you might yeah. as well end this podcast right here. All right. Uh, I mean, I won't try to justify it. It's just my... My own preference. I don't want to. I don't like being divided among other people. So I just well, choose not I'm, to partake. Oh well, I'm just telling you. Sometimes inaction in the face of evil only gives evil more sucker and more strength, and that means you don't know your history. Do you know what's happening to America right now? Is exactly what happened in Germany in the 30s when even your best friends and relatives became Hitlerites. Do you know, I have two relatives that married into the family that both voted Trump in 16. And you know why? They're educated. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're my, you know, male cousins. But why did they vote Trump? Oh, my stocks will go up. It's purely selfish greed. So fuck the country. Fuck the Supreme Court. Fuck America, as long as I got mine and my stocks will rise. They don't think they're ignorant or racist or anti-Semitic. Oh, how can they be anti-Semitic? Just like Jared Kushner. Oh, he's Jewish. Yeah, some of the worst anti-Semites in history are self-hating Jews like Jared Kushner and Stephen Miller. So I'm just telling you right now, man, it was the non-voters like you Mm -hmm. that that de facto voted for Trump. And I use the term de facto, which means in truth, in reality, but by, I, no, I, by I, not I, voting. And I've let never me voted. I've, I haven't voted in my entire life. Well, why are you so proud of that? 
because I don't want to pick sides. I, mean, I just want to but love everybody. You no, but my point is just like there are times in history, like World War II, that you have to take sides, that you can't play the safe middle. And the safe middle is what, what do you think all the Germans said who were in the safe middle? Oh, oh we, didn't, we didn't know they were killing Jews. Oh, we didn't know there were concentration camps. Let me tell you something. Inaction is a form of action, whether you realize it or not. No, and you obviously I, and I, under, I understand your point, you know, and I can respect Okay, that. listen, you derailed this podcast by going into <laughs> politics. That's your choice. No, I, I didn't mean to. I, listen, well, but you did. And all I'm telling you is I hate, and hate's a strong word, and I use it very sparingly. Mm -hmm. But I'm telling you right now, if, if we don't vote him out in a landslide, He's going to stay in office. He's plotting right now how to stay in office. And he's got armed Americans in your very state waiting for the signal to murder people. Murder people. And God, and let's, they know where blacks live. They know where Jews live. They know where the media is. They know where reporters are. The minute Trump gives the signal, Gary, they're going to start murdering people. I hope not. Guess what? You better get used to that, and I hope I'm wrong. But that, they're I waiting. So. They're waiting. Too. They're waiting for the signal. Are you, are, you, are you up on the news and the proud boys who are waiting for the signal? And if you think Trump doesn't have a bottom or a soul, he doesn't. He will do anything to stay in office because he knows a jail cell is waiting for him the minute he's out of office. He will be a cornered rat that will drag the country down with him. I don't know who's guarding the nuclear football, but if you don't think Trump would push the button if he was cornered like a rat in the White House with soldiers about to take him out, Oh, and by the way, did I mention the military and the police are on Trump's side, along with the Republican Senate, along with the 63 million American assholes who voted for him, and most of the Supreme Court, and thousands of armed right-wing nutjobs ready to murder at his signal. That is what we're up against on November 3rd. And people like you that don't vote, Sorry, Gary. I got no time for people like you. You're, you are part of the problem. And I'm not going to listen to any other point of view on this. So whatever you want to talk about now is up to you. Totally soon. What we're living in right now. Yeah. <laughs> I do a no, webinar. I, that way. <laughs> I do a webinar called Twilight Zone Ahead of Its Time that I'll be doing again on November 10th with New York Adventure Club. And that's all about episodes that I've chosen to show clips from that are eerily prescient to what we're going through in these last, you know, year with, with the shutdown, with, with solitude, with social distancing. There's so many episodes of The Twilight Zone that deal with loneliness and solitude, whether it's forced solitude or or chosen solitude and oh, some of the dot yeah some of the time already put them in the zoo 
So there's one episode of called People Are Alike All Over with the great American actor Roddy McDowell, who was the ape in Planet of the Apes, the original. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but it's a classic for Planet yeah. of the Apes. Yeah, 1968, one of the great movies. Co Screenplay co-written by Serling, by the way, and I'll get to that in a second. So uh, people are like all over. He plays an astronaut that they go to Mars and they crash land on Mars. And um, it was a two-man crew and Roddy McDowell's astronaut partner dies in the crash. But the Martians that he meets look like Earth people and they're benevolent. They're nice. And they take him out of his crash spacecraft and they, they build like, a, like an Earth home for him that is a perfect earth home down to the exact details and they tell him why don't you stay here for a little while get accustomed to your new home and we'll see you uh, later spoiler alert we come to the end of the episode guess what they built him an alien zoo for for humans and he was trapped in that earth home like a zoo so the term people are alike all over Mm. as an ironic twist it does rob sterling was a rod sterling was a genius first of all it's rod sterling not sterling a lot of people make that mistake yeah um you want to hear an interesting story about planet of the apes and sterling and twilight zone yes love to okay so everybody remembers the greatest one of the greatest endings in fact I think after the ending of Citizen Kane, where Rosebud is revealed, I think the greatest ending in movie history after that has to be the ending to Planet of the Apes. Spoiler alert, when Charlton Heston's on the beach. Yeah. And all along, you thought you were on an alien planet run by apes. But then what does he see? The wreck of the Statue of Liberty, which means he was on Earth the whole time. And that was the big shock ending, right? Yes. With one of the greatest, right? That image of the, of the ruined Statue of Liberty on the beach. Isn't that one of the great movie images of all time? Absolutely. And am I right? Does it rank along with Rosebud as one of the greatest, you know, ending images of any movie ever? Yeah. Yeah, I think the ending of 2001 A Space Odyssey, also from 1968, I think those are the three greatest movie ending. How about Jaws? Yeah, but the ending itself, I'm talking about literally the last image that you see on screen. Rosebud burning, the sled. The last, Im you know, I'm not talking about just any ending. I'm talking about it has to have this, you know, single image ending. Right. Yeah, it. Jaws has a great ending when Robert Shaw gets eaten. That's one of the great movie deaths ever. Yes. But it's not the kind of ending I'm talking about. You're talking more about surrealism. Well, there's a surreal aspect, but no. I'm saying a, for a great movie ending that I'm talking about is an ending that ends with a final image of impact. So when you think of the end of Citizen Kane, spoiler alert, where Rosebud, the sled, is burning in the oven. And the camera goes close up. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That's the kind of ending I'm talking about. A single image 
These dead silences are killing me, Gary. You gotta say something. You can't. I, I, just... I, sorry, man. I was still visualizing this that single image of the Statue of Liberty on the beach. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So here's the backstory. Most people don't realize that Rod Serling co-wrote the Planet of the Apes screenplay. Did you know that? I did not know that. Okay. So right away, have I blown your mind just with that factoid? Big time. Okay. So. The other screenwriter, I think his name is Michael Wilson. And I don't think it's the same Michael Wilson who's a co-producer of the Bond movies, but what do I know? I think it's a different Michael Wilson. Anyway, Planet of the Apes aficionados to this day are still arguing on internet forums who contributed what to the screenplay. It started with Serling, then Wilson got it, then I don't know, Sir, you know, it's one of these stories where in the end, it says screenplay by Michael Wilson and Rod Serling. So Serling got second billing. But I'm a Twilight Zone aficionado, right? Yes. So what if I told you, and I don't know how well you know your Twilight Zone episodes, but um, in the first season of Twilight Zone, 1959 to 1960, there's an episode called I Shot an Arrow into the Air, and it's written by Serling, the creator of The Twilight Zone. He wrote like 93 out of the 156 episodes. And um, it's one of the science fiction episodes. And it has to do with a, a U.S. spacecraft that crash lands on a desert planet. And most of the crew members died, but three are left alive. And one by one the kind of rogue astronaut murders the other two in order to stay alive because there's very little water left. And the last guy that he kills was on a scouting mission to look for water. And with his dying breath after the bad guy shoots him, he scrawls in the sand next to him what looks like either a cross or the letter T. And then he dies. And the audience is left to wonder, what was he trying to scrawl? So in the last couple minutes of the episode, the last astronaut, the bad guy, is left alone looking for water. And he climbs over a mountain, you know, ridge. And what does he see? Telephone poles. He's in Reno, Nevada. They crash landed back on Earth and didn't know it. Ah, so so he kind of took that from the from that Twilight Zone. Okay, episode. so 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 when people argue, gee, what did Serling contribute? What did Michael Wilson? The okay, so here's the, the thing. thing. Well, but here's the thing: if you know the Planet of the Apes background, it was originally a novel by a French author named Pierre Boulle, and I think it came out in 1961 or 62. The original novel does take place on another planet. Not, it doesn't take place on Earth like mm -hmm. the way Serling wrote it. And if you remember, Tim Burton did a remake of Planet of the Apes about 20 years ago. Yeah. He based his remake on the original novel that takes place on another planet. So the twist ending that Charlton Heston finds out he's been on Earth the whole time is basically that Twilight Zone episode from seven years earlier, 
eight years earlier. And you ready for this? One last little know. bit. How did Serling get the idea for the Twilight Zone episode? How? So in the fall of 1959, Twilight Zone debuts. And it was an overnight success with the critics. Not so much in the ratings, but with the critics. And Serling is the toast of Hollywood. And he's at a cocktail party. And he's talking to a couple people. And there's a woman there. And they must have started talking about the relatively new Gemini uh, or Mercury space program, if you know the right stuff. This is 1959. Mm -hmm. This is the dawn of the space age. And the Mercury astronauts had just been named, I think, in 58. So this was on everybody's mind at the time. And this one woman at the cocktail party says, you know, I bet you if astronauts crash landed in the middle of the desert in Nevada, they would think they were on another planet. Serling so loved that idea that he took out his wallet and paid this woman, Madeline Champion, I think was her name, $500 on the spot for that idea. And he wrote that episode, I Shot an Arrow into the Air, which aired in early 1960. Hmm. I don't even remember seeing that episode. Well, you got to get the Twilight Zone DVDs. They've got great backup features and extras. They're worth it. If you, listen, to me, Twilight Zone is the, not only the greatest American television series of all time, but, but it's television art. I mean, if the aliens beam down right now in front of me, Gary, and they had room on their spaceship for one example of Earth television, what are you going to give them? Are you going to give them Sopranos? Are you going to give them Breaking Bad? Are you going to give them Seinfeld? I Love Lucy? What are you going to give them? Seinfeld. Okay. I love Seinfeld. I've seen every episode. It's the I Love Lucy of our generation. But that's not what I'm giving the aliens. I'm giving them about 25 half-hour episodes of The Twilight Zone. And I'm going to tell them, this is the greatest television Amer uh, the Earth has ever produced. This is television art. And you will learn everything about the human condition from these episodes. No offense to Seinfeld. I love Seinfeld. But that's not what I'm giving to the aliens. All right. So you're going to give them the zone. About 25 half hours and one of those episodes. Uh, by the way, I don't even think I shot an arrow is even in my top 25. Yeah, I don't even remember that one. Well, you got to go back and, and watch these great I remember they used to have a, a Twilight Zone marathon. They still do. They still oh, like do. Labor Day or Memorial well, Day. Well, no, no. Weird now, weekends. Well, now they only do it on New Year's Eve on the Sci-Fi Channel. Sometimes they do it on July 4th, but now it's been relegated to just New Year's Eve, which ain't bad. It's great to look forward to New Year's Eve, knowing that the Twilight Zone, even though they chop them up for commercials, you know, they edit out scenes. But let me tell you something, man. You invest in the, especially the Blu-ray DVDs, if you got a Blu-ray. First, I'm going to have to get a TV. What, are you a communist? <laughs> well, I mean, I live out in nowhere. You have no television. No. You watch everything on the internet or something? What? 
I watch a little, I read a little bit on my phone. That's about it. What the fuck's wrong with you? Why don't you have a television? Who needs TV, man? He just brainwashed you. Oh, man. Where'd you get all this conspiracy theory crap? That's what I do for a living. Oh, my God. <laughs> what is this country coming to? <laughs> you know, I don't know what to say. You're missing out on a lot of great television. <laughs> I'm seeing, you know, you know, we are in a golden age of television. We're in a golden age of television. We're in a golden age of television. And Dude, have, you, ha, have you watched Dude. The Bachelor? Or The Bachelorette? That's okay. the golden age of TV. Okay, listen to me. You ever hear Sturgeon's Law? You know what Sturgeon's Law is? Well, I know a Sturgeon is a fish. Theodore Sturgeon, the science fiction writer, came oh. up with a, um, a maxim, I guess you'd call it. 90% of everything is shit. Our job is to seek out the 10% that's great in every field of endeavor. 10% of novels are shit. 10% of movies. I mean, 90% of everything is crap. 90% of television. 90% of prose. 90% of music. 90% of everything is junk. 90% of people suck. Our job as human beings is to seek out and nourish and enjoy and promulgate the 10%. That's what I do most of my life is try to champion and promote the 10% that I think is great. But to waste my time on the 90%, I've never watched an episode of The Bachelor. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Well, but I'm just saying... I haven't 90% of everything is crap. But when I tell you we are living in a golden age of television, I know what I'm talking about. And there is more great television now with all these limited series and Netflix and all the things they're doing for television mm -hmm. that at any time in the history of the medium. So what's your favorite show that's current? Oh, man. I what would so you recommend if I had a TV? What should okay. I watch? Okay. Right now, uh, the new season of Fargo is brilliant. You got to just watch it. And watch, oh, that's already put the guy in the, in the wood chipper. Well, that was the movie Fargo. They've done a TV series Fargo that is loosely based on the movie, but they've gone so far astray that they're now telling crime stories that have nothing to do with Fargo, Minnesota itself. It, they're just, it's like a brand name Fargo. But the story they're telling right now is brilliant. There's, uh, there's so many series. Who has time to watch it all? That's how many good shows there are. Uh, I watch a show called Killing Eve, which is about a female assassin in Europe that gets emotionally involved with the female law enforcement agent that's trying to bring her to justice. And the actress who plays the assassin I think she won an Emmy or something. Jodie Comer. Brilliant. Brilliant. And you just have to watch it to know what I'm talking about. Hmm. Um, and there are so many series. Like I said, who's got the time? There's so many animated series that are brilliant right now. Have you ever seen an episode of Mike Tyson's Mysteries that's been running for five years? I'll have a TV. I'm just saying you could... Do you have a computer? You got stuff on the internet, don't you? YouTube? Yeah, I'm busy podcasting. 
uh, when you're not podcasting, what are you doing? I work. Okay. When you're not working, what are you doing? I work, I podcast, I sleep. Okay. Well, you know, what can I tell you? Find some time to watch a little TV. <laughs> God damn it. I it won't kill you. <laughs> Get one. It I, shouldn't I, be that difficult. I gave mine to the neighbor. There was nothing. And by on. the way, you can watch everything on the internet now. I got to tell you this? No, I know. There's a show on Netflix called Black Mirror from England that's like a 21st century Twilight Zone, except all the episodes are about the theme of technology run awry. Brilliant. Brilliant. I keep using the word brilliant because it's true. You know what show I like? Lucifer. Okay. I never saw that, but I heard it was good. This it's is what awesome. I'm saying. There are so many shows that people say are great, but you got see, now look, I'm an artist. When I'm on the computer, I have the TV on in the background, but I like it as background, like background radio or something. But if a show is good, I can't have it on the background because I want to watch it and pay attention. There's so much good television right now. We are in a golden age that you've got to make the time to watch it. And yeah, between working for a living and doing your vocation and avocation. There are so many shows like Lucifer that I've totally missed, but I heard that they're great. So I'm just telling you, man, you're missing a lot of great TV, but that's up to you. Maybe one day I'll buy another TV. You don't even need a TV. You can watch everything through the internet. I can watch man. it on my phone. Well, listen, size does matter when it comes to imagery. Okay? <laughs> Boy, if only I could monetize. If only I could monetize my ability. You're my greatest audience. Where have you been all my life? <laughs> In Alabama. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. Listen. What's the expression? I wouldn't be caught dead in Alabama. Wait, on the other hand, I think I would be caught dead in Alabama. <laughs> oh, you got to get out of Alabama, man. It just came out of nowhere. That was listen, brilliant. Listen, listen. That was brilliant. Listen, there's only one place I can think of worse than living in Connecticut, and that's probably Alabama. Uh, dude, I, I've been to New Haven. Yeah, I've been to New Haven, too. You know, that's I, the I wasn't impressed. That's the origin of the hamburger, you know. There's a little tiny place called Louie's Lunch. That is the origin of the hamburger. They're still using these weird vertical broilers to cook the ground beef vertically so that the fat drips down. Uh -huh. These are the same burners that they used in 1890 to create the first hamburger. Oh, I think I've seen that before. It's like called the cages that flip over. Yeah, it's called Louie's Lunch. Yeah. And it's in New Haven. Listen, I only go to New Haven to go to Louie's Lunch or maybe Sally's or Pepe's Pizza. That's How about it. The, the New Haven Ravens? The what? The Ravens. New Haven Ravens. What is that? What is that? Minor league baseball team? I could give a flying fuck about minor league baseball. Sorry. You don't like minor league baseball? I don't like baseball. Boring. I'm a big football fan. While I'm talking to you, I have the football game on in the background. Tuesday night football. Oh, thanks so, to COVID. So you're an Eagles thanks fan. Thanks to COVID. No, I'm not. Why would you say Eagles? Because... <laughs> I'm an Eagles fan. But why, why did you bring up the Eagles? Because everybody loves the Eagles. I don't like the Eagles. 
Are you a Giants fan? No, I'm not. I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, believe it or not. I didn't know there was such a thing. Yeah, that's because they're the most hapless franchise in sports. You know, and it's so funny. I was just reading on Facebook. Like, somebody asked, is there such a thing as the Cleveland Browns? Well, look, here I am. I'm interviewing him. Listen, they're four and one for the first time in 25 years. Don't get me started on the brown baggers, as I call them. <laughs> While everybody else is having a catered lunch by craft services, the Cleveland team <laughs> is brown bagging it. That's what I call it. They have found ways to lose. Listen, they went 0-16 two years ago. I mean, the <laughs> fact that they have a winning record, Cleveland should be hosting a celebration. I'm telling you, they're okay. How does somebody in Connecticut become a Cleveland fan? I grew up in New Jersey, and my brother and I, we didn't like the Giants or the Jets. Back then, the Giants and Jets sucked, except for the one year the Jets won the Super Bowl. Right, so you like the Eagles. No, I don't like the Eagles. That's what everybody does. The Eagles are in Philadelphia. But, but somehow you go to Cleveland? Okay, I'll tell you how, since you're asking. I was 10 years old in 1968. And I was introduced to football that year by my friends who knew more about football than I did. And I, I got my first generic football jersey, meaning it wasn't a team jersey, just a generic, and it had the number 44. So I asked my friend who knew about the NFL, who in the NFL is good who's number 44? And he goes, the Cleveland Browns have a running back named Leroy Kelly. Now, if you know your Cleveland Brown NFL history, they had the greatest running back of all time, Jim Brown, coincidentally named Brown, that retired in 1966 at the peak of his career to become an actor. He was in the movie The Dirty Dozen with Lee Marvin, great World War II film. You ever seen that? Wait, James Coburn's in that movie. Yes. Flint. Yes. We're in full circle here. Wait a second. No, uh, that's not James Coburn. He's not in Dirty Dozen. That's Lee Marvin. Sorry, Lee I'm, Marvin. I could swore James Coburn was in Dirty no, Dozen. No, no, no. Well, let's not get off track here. Okay. point I'm trying to make is when Jim Brown retired to become an actor, which, by the way, didn't work out so well. He made a few films, and that was it. But he left the Browns at the height of his career. He was the number one leading NFL rusher of all time. But who had to replace him? A guy named Leroy Kelly, who by 1968 was one of the best running backs in the NFL. And his number was 44. Now, in those days, home football games were not televised locally unless they sold out. The thinking was, if we televise the home games, people will stay home. They won't buy a ticket. So back then, the only games that were televised were the away games. You follow me? Yeah. So I'll never forget the same weekend that my friend told me about Leroy Kelly. That Sunday, the Giants happened to be playing in Cleveland. And the game was televised back in the New York area. So I got to see Leroy Kelly play the guy that was number 44. And he was a great running back, and he had a very uh, personal running style, just like all the great running backs do, kind of juking and jiving kind of style. 
And I became an instant Cleveland Brown fan at 10 years old because of Leroy Kelly and the number 44. And you stayed that way forever. Well, when the Browns, so, do you so remember when the Denver Broncos had John? Years. Well, well, hold on longer. Remember when the Denver Broncos in the early nineties, they were in like four Super Bowl, three Super Bowls in a row. And they got creamed in every one. Yeah. It was young, young John Elway at yeah, the time. I remember that. Well, do you remember who the Denver Broncos beat all three times to get to the Super Bowl? No. Take a guess, Einstein. Cleveland Browns. Yeah, your gold star is on its way for your forehead. <laughs> well, it actually took you time to think that, you know. <laughs> Anyway, everything takes me time. I can see. You know, life is a little bit slow here. It comes from not watching enough television. Pleats the mind. Anyway, where was I? So, I became a you know when the when the attachments you make when you're a kid, whether it's the music you're hearing, the art that you're looking at, the TV or the movies you're watching, they influence the rest of your life. Remember the Albert Camus quote that I recited at the top of this podcast? Yes. Those two or three great and simple images, whether it's visual images or oral images, A-U-R-A-L, um, mm -hmm. uh, they stick with you the rest of your life and they influence your life. And that's what happened with the Cleveland Browns. So they are the winningest team never to have been to the Super Bowl. Not been to the Super Bowl and lost, there's only one other original NFL team that's never even been to the Super Bowl other than the Browns. You know who they are? Mm, Miami? Nope. Miami? Miami won two Super Bowls. Are you insane? I don't remember. <laughs> oh, man. Tampa Bucks? I, okay, okay. I'm telling you right Was now. Was it the Bucks? I'm telling you right now. You know, know you know you know you know they they used to say television rots your mind. I'm the opposite. I'm telling you, you don't watch enough television. That's why you're a little slow. You know, forget about living in Alabama. You got to watch more TV to get a little bit hipper and a little bit quicker. <laughs> it's enough that you're living in Alabama. Well, I'm quick enough. I can draw a gun pretty fast. That's your measure of your manhood. Now we're going to talk about guns. Yes. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, the more, the more I know about you, the less I like you. I, ha I hate to say it. I love you, man. I, I think you're great. I know, but you're scaring me with these details like guns. Well, you have to here. It's not like up there. I know. So get out of Alabama. It's my home. Well, get out of there. If I move again, it's going to be to Mexico. Anything's better than Alabama. Come on. Is the food good at least? Oh, yeah. That, that southern the, the, bar the barbecue and the okay. gumbo. Now, let me tell you something. And can you, seafood. Can you just take some of the barbecue leftovers, stick them in a FedEx foil-line pouch, and send it to me in Connecticut? Can you do that? Your yeah, leftover. I, I, I could do that, yeah. Just, just take your leftovers, stuff them in a bag, and FedEx them to me, okay? All right. Okay? Deal. 
then I'll be happy. Yeah, you'll you'll love Moe's barbecue. I love barbecue, man. It's the one, you know, it's actually pre-pandemic. Barbecue made a comeback in the New York City area because they changed the laws about 10 years ago to allow smokers in, in New York City or something like that. So the last 10 years, I'd say, the New York area, Manhattan and Brooklyn, have an influx of what they call authentic Southern barbecue. But I've got to believe like everything else. Yeah, it's better than the old barbecue we used to have, but I bet you you still have to go down south to get the real barbecue. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. There's nothing Listen, like it. If you can guarantee my safety by being my armed bodyguard, mm-hmm. I'll come down to Alabama just for the food, okay? Okay. Deal. If you invite me, I will come, but you got to be my armed bodyguard. I can do that. Nothing scares me. Okay, well, I'll be plenty scared just being in Alabama, so I'm going to need you, okay? I'm here for you, man. Hey, I love you. I love you too, man. (laughs) (laughs) You've turned me around in the last five minutes by mentioning barbecue. (laughs) Now, let me ask something. Is Alabama, based on its geographical area, I know that the eastern southern states are big on the vinegar-based uh, barbecue sauces, the more yellow sauces. Am I right? Carolina, yeah. mm-hmm. whereas the southern states like Texas and all that, they're into the red sauces. Yeah, definitely. Where does Alabama sit? Because they're kind of in between the east and the south, right? It's red. Red sauce. Yeah. Because I love- Especially where I'm at, where I'm because I'm like in the most southern part. Like I'm right near like the Gulf of Mexico. Right, 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 right. Well, let me ask you something. I love all barbecue. I mean, I love the the uh, Carolina sauces too. I mean, how can you not love those too? They're good. Okay, let me ask another thing about chili. What is it about Texas where they don't like beans in their chili? I love beans and chili. Yeah, I do too. Why does Texas? <laughs> Who's that laughing in the back? <laughs> yeah, that's my that's my my uh, friend staying with me for two weeks. <laughs> They can hear you uh, even through my earbuds. Uh, where, where's he from? Oh, he's from everywhere. Don't get me started on him. Well, he's got to be from somewhere. Talk about me. I he's a drifter? To, okay. I got well, a where th- did this guy come from? <laughs> Hold on a second. I got a theory about beans and Texas chili. Okay. Do you have, why, why are Texans so anti-bean in their chili? And what kind of chili do you get in Alabama? Beans or no beans? Beans. Okay. Why are Texans so anti-beans in their chili? I don't know. But you know that, don't you? They don't consider beans to be part of chili. Am I right? Yeah, but that, to me, that's not chili. Okay, but they think it's chili. They think if you put beans... At, at, at that point, it's like sloppy joe. Okay, but they consider beans... I'm not making this up. They consider chili to not have beans. Okay? But here's no, my thing. wrong. Okay, but here's my theory. Why do you think they're anti-beans? I don't know, man. They don't like having gas. Okay, get out all your jokes now. But why do you think they're anti-bean? I don't know. Okay, you got, I'm going to give you 30 seconds, uh, Brainiac, to come up with an answer here. (laughs) Oh. They can't open the cans. 
Okay, get out all your jokes. Get out all the jokes now. Why are they anti-bean? There's a real answer here. It's Texas. Why are they anti-bean? Oh, man. You know, you really disappointed me. You're a lousy student. Is it because uh, Mexicans are called beaners? Okay. I think it's a totally racist thing. They associate beans with Mexicans, and they don't allow beans in their chili because to them it represents Mexicans. Hmm. Now, I might be wrong. That's my own theory, but I bet you I'm right. Because everybody who loves chili loves beans in their goddamn chili. True. Except Texans. It's racist. Man. Hello? Fuck, fuck Texas. Well, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. They, they are purposely not enjoying chili to the fullest because of their racism. Mm. It's their loss. You're, you're darn tootin' it's their loss. Literally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it means more. It means they're more. They're it definitely means, not tootin'. Yeah, it means more beans for the rest of us. Anyway. Boy, we've covered a lot of ground here, haven't we? We have, yeah. This, this might have been my best episode ever. Okay, you better tell Michelle Freed, my great booker that booked me on this show with you. You better tell her that. I will. You better. Yeah, I mean, I'm always in communication with Michelle. Well, that's great. And you better have me on again. Absolutely. You're welcome anytime. Well, anything you want to talk about, I'll talk about with you. I'll talk about anything. If you look at some of the stuff I've talked about on this show, it would blow your mind. Really? Try me. Have you looked at my episodes? No, I haven't. I haven't had the time. Uh, are you on a computer? Yeah. Okay. Go to uh, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Okay. Hold on. I, I did go today because I, want, I, I wanted to email you stuff, but I didn't have your email address. You know, your website doesn't have a way to contact you, you know. Yeah, I haven't gotten to that yet. Why not? I've been busy. Busy doing what? You're in Alabama. What the hell are you going to be busy doing? <laughs> Interviewing you. Uh, <laughs> listen, this would all be great if I were getting paid for this. <laughs> well, you're going to get a lot of fans. Trust me. Listen, I don't trust you. You're a mouth to God's ears. It would be nice <laughs> if I actually saw an uptick in ticket sales after you this will. podcast. Yeah, really? Huge. Really? Are you willing to guarantee that with your own money? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely not. Sure, why not? It's not like I, I have any money to guarantee it with. That's my point. <laughs> okay, you can put up barbecue as collateral. All right. All right, so, so you've got, are, are you at the website now? Hold on. I'm too busy gabbing with you to go to the website. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Who's that guy in the background? That's my friend Tom that's staying with me for two weeks. Where is he from? He's from the Boston area. I've been to Boston. And I have a deep suspicion that he's a Boston racist. Mm. I'm trying to figure that out. Is he Irish? Uh, no, he's, uh, you're not Irish. You're, uh, what are you? Jansen. Uh, hey. He's a Viking. <laughs> Jansen. Jansen. Yeah. yeah. And I'm telling you, this is happening across America where friends are all of a sudden realizing 
is my friend a racist? This is what's <laughs> happening. Thanks to Trump. This is happening all over America. Like, is my wife a racist? <laughs> Gee, is my father a racist? Yeah. Welcome to America in the year oh, 2020. You know, Italians in Alabama are considered black. Well, that goes back way, egg, calling them eggplants, because the Sicilians supposedly intermarried with Africans and became the darker oh, Italians. Don't, don't tell no, but isn't that, is that a made-up theory? Is no, that reality? Don't tell that to any Sicilian. No, but they don't like to hear that. But no, exactly. isn't that what happened? That the southern know. Italians mated with the Africans and created the darker-skinned Italians. So don't they have black blood? Maybe. Well, I don't know. I'd rather talk about Italian food than Italian Are, are, are you at the website yet? <laughs> no, I'm not at your website because you keep, you keep distracting me with these other topics. Hold on. Talking about Italian food. Okay, now I'm going to your website. Okay. The and then click, go, to web, go to episodes, and you can see all the great content that I have created. Now, wait a second. Hold on. <laughs> Wait, and I'm you can sorry. also go to merchandise and buy a t-shirt too. Oh. And you can wear it while you're doing one of your webinars. Nice try. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't happening. Listen, I'm trying to sell tickets. You should be pushing my thing, not your thing. <laughs> this is a symbiotic relationship. Oh, big word for you. <laughs> symbiotic. Okay, I'm on the Everything Imaginable website. All right, now click on episodes. Okay. Mark Ireland, Patricia Corey, Eric Rains. I got it. Do you see those great topics I have? Uh, they're brilliant. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I, I got life after death. Listen, I, I, got, I, I have, I have shape shifting reptilians. Listen, I'm humbled to be in such august company. Good word. You like that? Good august. Word. Not August, August. So yes, except I'm telling you, I wanted to email you today. There's no way of contact. You don't even put your name on here. Scary Cachalo. Where, where are you? Where is Gary? No. No, oh, Jesus Christ. I'm just saying, how do people contact you if they want to contact you? Everything imaginable 2020 at gmail.com. No, but where is that email address on your site? It's not there yet. I'm asking you if you go to your site, there's no way to reach out to you. I know that. Well, fix that. Well, then I'm going to get a bunch of spam mail. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Why am I wasting my time with you trying to make you better? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. Anywho, okay, I think we're reaching the end of the day. Haven't we been talking for over two hours? I noticed all the other podcasts are only an hour and a half. How come ours is two hours? This is good entertainment. Yeah, that's your point of view, maybe. Everybody's going to love this episode. They better, man. I want to see metrics. I want to you, you see. Are, you're going to get so much fan mail from this. Uh, yeah, really? I, really. Dare, I dare you to forward me that fan mail. I dare you. Well, what they're going to do is I'm going to put those links to your website there. And okay. Look up to your website. Okay. If you have like a contact thing, okay. like Here, I don't have. <laughs> here's the deal. If I see an uptick on ticket sales for my Bond webinar, uh -huh. then, then I will comp you into my Bruce webinar. 
But guess what? If I don't see an uptick in ticket sales, you're not getting comped into my Bruce webinar. I guarantee you'll even see a huge uptick. Really? You guarantee it? Who are you, Joe Namath before the Super Bowl three? Yeah, well, actually, do you know I have a, I've written a book. Uh, are you a very wealthy man with a mansion and a yacht? No, no, but, but my books, the, the title of my book is Enlightenment Guarantee, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. So okay. I guarantee people enlightenment. Okay, okay. I love that. I, I used to uh, have long talks with a Zen minister. I try to be Zen in my life. I try to walk on the middle path, the wise man's path. I try not to be attached to uh, desires. I try not to look backwards and become attached to negative and things in the past. And I try to just walk that wise man's middle path. Am I right? One step at a time. Living in the moment like we're right now. Right now. All right. And on that note, I think we should bring this to an end. I want to watch the rest of my football game, okay? All right. I'm going to eat dinner and edit this episode, and I'll put it out for you tonight. Gary, all kidding aside, I love you, man. This has been really wonderful. I love you too, man. This was fun. Thanks for letting me wax poetic ad nauseum. And just remind people, arlenschumer.com, nyadventureclub.com, and you'll be set, okay? Okay. And I'm going to send you an email in probably about – an hour with all the links to the episode. Beautiful. I'll promote this on my, by the way, Facebook friend me and all that. Let's get connected. Okay. Um, are, are you the I only just, Arlen Schumer? What do you think? They well, broke the mold when they made me baby. There's only one Arlen. All right. That's it. Well, there's only one Gary Cacciolillo too on Facebook. Well, so. that's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. But friend me. Okay. So I we will. can stay connected. Yeah, I will. Okay, Matt, listen, this has been great. Let's do it again whenever you want to, okay? You got it, man. Now, now listen, I am comping you into Bruce, okay? Okay. But you got to send me your email address so I can comp you in. I, you have my email address because I just sent you the Zoom link. I emailed you. You hit reply. Oh, is that, wait. If, if, you that click, if you click reply, it'll come to me. Okay, hold on a second. I didn't realize that was directly from you. Apostrophe, uh, Mitchmo0123, that one? No. Well, that's where it's coming from. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That was the wrong email. Hold on a second. Where is your Zoom thing? I just had it. You know? Oh, here we go. Everything imaginable. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now I have it. Okay. I didn't know that was coming from you. Great. So, okay, so where, Gary. Where, so, so why is your friend at your house? Uh, he's in between jobs and he's on his way down to Florida to interview for a, a new job, hopefully. What part of Florida? What part of Florida? Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale. Oh, down south. Nowhere's oh. near me. Closer to you. Well, that would be like 10 hours from me. Well, if I go to visit him, if he gets the job, we'll come to you for barbecue, okay? You got it. And then we'll do a podcast right in your neck of the woods in Alabama. Yeah, we could do it. Hanging out with like the alligators and stuff. Yeah, while you fight off all the militiamen coming to murder me Uh, because I I voted against Trump. They don't care. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, let's say let's end on, on an uplifting positive note. Shall we? Yes. Uh, I'm asking you to end this on an uplifting positive note. Oh man, it was great talking to you. Right back at you, man. No, <laughs> Have no, a listen. good night. You too. Great talking again. Uh, this has been wonderful. I love yes, you. Yes. Love you too, okay. man. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.